All right. Um, I'm going to ask a couple of questions to try to have something a bit interactive for the first few minutes. And we have a uh, seven-minute video clip to watch, and then I'll talk for a bit more. Um, I'm used to leading discussion classes here at Pepperdine. I'm a professor here in our religion and philosophy department. I teach theology and ethics, and uh, but I teach by discussion, not by lecture. Um, but it's really hard to teach by discussion with a topic where I don't know who in the room knows what. So I will be talking a little bit more than I would normally do, but I'll invite you at a few points along the way to, to add um, your commentary. So two questions to start off with. One is uh, this, what do you think American Protestant Christians are known for these days? Just what's the first things that come to your mind that we as American Protestants are known for, either here in the States or around the world? Fighting abortion. Fighting abortion, okay, thank you. Anti-gay. Anti-gay, okay, homophobic. Okay, thank you. Charity. I'm sorry? Charity. Charity, okay, thank you. Denominationalism. Denominationalism, all right, lots of us, right, lots of different churches. Conservatism of some sort, okay, thank you. I'm anti-science. Anti-science, okay? Yeah, definitely, yeah. So we'll get more into that in a few minutes because I was a former biology major and so I make my life doing lots of science and religion kind of stuff. So that one I hear a lot all the time. Are we known, you think, either in the States or around the world for solving the great world problems of today? Well, for those who are, are going to be listening to this in posterity, most of this room was shaking their heads no. You in the back. Well, I was trying to say evangelicals is kind of the, the word or descriptor that's kind of coats a lot of us. Yeah, that's right, right? So a lot it's, of... it's politicized, it's culturalized, there's just a lot of baggage that goes mm -hmm. with it. Yeah, that word evangelical, especially with a capital E, sort of seems to be the umbrella term for American Protestantism, even though evangelicals only came onto the scene um, in the 1900s, and, and the sort that we hear about the most only came into effect in the 1980s. Um, so uh, we get painted with a very broad brush um, with that. Um, but I think if, if you didn't dissuade me on that, the head shaking, that most of us would say in this room that we are not known as the great problem solvers of the world these days. And which is very interesting because if you look at most of Christian history, Christians are at the forefront of problem solving in most of the world's great problems at some, in some form or another, whether it was creating orphanages, whether it was starting colleges, whether it was starting hospitals, um, whether it was doing some really interesting peace work in, all over the world that we were known as the problem solvers. And yet here we are in a very divisive political, social, and otherwise moment, just, not just in our nation, but in lots of places around the world. And Christians, unfortunately, are stereotyped far more for their divisiveness than they are for their problem solving. Okay? So I'm going to come back to that in a, in a few moments, and particularly uh, at the end of today and, and tomorrow especially, to try to ask, is there something that we can do to help solve uh, at least one of the world's great problems that we'll talk about in a few minutes. So the second question for um, public comment, what, if anything, does the term climate refugees mean to you? You heard of that term? Does it mean anything to you? Just two random words in the English dictionary put together. <laughs> no clue? Thank you. Ugly weather. 
Okay. Ugly weather causing permanent change. Okay. We'll come back to that in a moment. Thank you. I yes. actually think of populations I visited in the Caribbean, so I think mm -hmm. actual people I've listened to and their stories are horrible mm -hmm. to survive no water. Yes. We will look at uh, a group of people in the Pacific, not in the Atlantic, but in the Pacific in a few minutes. And I actually leave for New Zealand in a few days to take a group of Pepperdine students there. And the, the video we'll see is, is addressing a Pacific Island nation that's close by to New Zealand and how those folks are dealing with the lack of fresh water and uh, arable land uh, to grow food. Any other? Yeah, I think the climate change in its normal cycle changes throughout history. Okay. Where people go for, to grow their crops, to hunt their animals, to do all those things. Okay, thank you. Yes? My, my perception was just based on you know, the description of uh, the uh, politics in part and the opinions associated with climate change was as we have climate change, theoretically warming of the earth and therefore melting of the ice caps, we have increased sea levels, which mm -hmm. is going to distribute people in different areas of the world. That's what I perceived as your title or associated with your title. Okay. And uh, while we will look at, in just a moment, a video of people uh, displaced by sea level rise, there is also the expansion of the world's deserts. So this is a, it's a two, not just a twofold, but at least in those kind of issues, a twofold. We have the expansion of deserts that causes people to move and the expansion of water, which causes people to move both in different sort of ways. So let me pull up the, the video. We have about a seven and a half minute video uh, on the island. There's a couple of islands, or more than two, but a handful of islands in the middle of the Pacific called, uh, called Tuvalu now. Half a world away and surrounded by the Pacific Ocean are 33 picturesque islands which make up the Republic of Kiribati, or Kiribati, as locals say. I'm sorry, Tuvalu is next door. I the wrong video. Sorry, didn't have a video for my class. What are your plans for the future? My plans is for the future is to migrate. Why? Yes, to leave this country. Why do you want to leave here? I want to leave the U.S. because of climate change. Enterly Karigua has two kids, eight and nine years old, but cannot imagine a future for them here. I have no choice, no other choice. If tsunami coming or ice ice setting our water, how can we survive for the future? The Ikiribas have been here for centuries. 100,000 residents who occupy stretches of land as narrow as a basketball court. So narrow that waves from one side can roll straight on through to the other. Half of Kiribati's population is under the age of 25, and some scenarios show that within their lifetimes, their home islands could become uninhabitable, engulfed by the rising ocean. It seems like paradise. It is a paradise. Well, it is a paradise that we are losing. The beach Alofa co-founded the first climate change NGO in the country. The most disastrous thing in Kiribati right now is the rising of the sea. If you look around you now, you see sea walls. The tide that keep on coming and taking away our land. The sea walls back here didn't seem to work. They don't work. It is continuing to be destroyed. 
The seawall is broken. There was a seawall here? Yes. And now it's just flooded with water? Yes, flooded with water. Where was your home? My home, right in the middle of the water. Your home was there? Yes. It's just been washed away? Yes, washed away. So you would have been walking through people's homes right yes. now? Yes, yes. Who do you blame? I know they're going to hate me. It's okay. America, United States. United States is responsible for over a quarter of the world's carbon emissions to date. In recent years, a warming planet and melting glaciers have resulted in rising seas and an increase in extreme weather events, like this King Kai in the capital of Kiribati back in 2015. And that's not just Kiribati, that's worldwide. 40% of the world's population lives within 60 miles of the coast. 145 million live less than three feet above sea level. This is Miami last month, and New Orleans just two weeks ago. By the end of the century, worst case projections have parts of those cities, along with parts of Boston and Manhattan, underwater. But these places all have higher ground to relocate to, those on Kiribati have nowhere to run. Scientist and climate expert Ben Strauss models projections of sea level rise. Sea level rise raises the launch path for coastal floods and makes every coastal flood deeper and more damaging. Today, sea level is rising 50% faster than it was 20 years ago, and that's a real cause for alarm. Kiribati sits just about six feet above sea level, so there's nowhere to safely rebuild. This was a house here? Yeah, this is a house before. Water just the came water and destroyed this house. With a, with a strong wind and destroyed the house. Kabua John has seen his neighbors on a remote island of Kiribati displaced because of extreme tides. This fisherman here who's working on his net used to be here. Yeah, he hasn't like repaired the inside because no, no. Salt water inundated this village, contaminating the groundwater and killing the crops in this field. Ten families have already left. Only Maria Takei's family remains. Interesting that she has probably one of the lowest carbon footprints in the world, but she's the one feeling climate change. Yeah, we have to go to maybe another country. Countries that they have mountains, you know? The United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. We were in Kiribati in June when President Trump announced his decision. President Trump just saying now that the U.S. will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. This is getting applause at his press conference in Washington, D.C. The president claimed the 2015 treaty, which sets limits on global greenhouse gas emissions that are gradually warming our planet, would have killed American jobs and placed an unfair burden on the U.S. As president, I can put no other consideration before the well-being of American citizens. Where is the justice? in sending your emissions our way so that we can get a better life and we reduce our 
Where is the testicle? Former Kiribati president Anote Tong has encouraged his people to leave before they are displaced, purchasing 5,000 acres of land in Fiji that could serve as a refuge. And last month, Fiji's prime minister said people from Kiribati who flee due to climate change could settle permanently. Having lost their home, I, last thing I would wish to see them lose is their dignity. Climate change is not a national issue. It's a global issue. And we need global thinking. We need global leadership. And that is what is lacking at the moment. Five Kiribati residents applied for refugee status in nearby New Zealand and were rejected. The United Nations does not recognize climate change as a valid reason to become a refugee. For now, the residents of Kiribati are left wondering. It's dangerous and it's scary and worries me for my future's sake and especially my kids. For you, that's the answer to leave? Yes, I have to leave. But as you might imagine, packing up and leaving is no simple subject. Have you ever thought of leaving this place? No. Why not? This is my home island. I'm born here. I love it. The land is changing, but I still remain the same. And my heart and my spirit remain the same. And I love my people and I love my land. Do you mind flipping the light right behind you, please? Thank you. So, as you saw, uh, I mixed up my other videos on Tuvalu. This is on Kiribati, which is just down the, down the Pacific Coast or Pacific Ocean uh, Highway from them, so to speak. Um, they have been denied status in New Zealand. Tuvalu, though, has a special relationship with New Zealand, and most of its 15,000 residents likely will move to New Zealand by the end of the century. Um, that's at least the plan at this moment, but um, some new governmental uh, authorities in New Zealand are not quite as confident about that as previous administrations were. So we see just in a small bit, 100,000 or so people there, 10,000 in another place, and I'll get to more of the numbers in, in just a moment. Uh, normally when I teach classes, I tell my students I don't really care how they feel, um, so I don't ask them feelings questions because we can't debate feelings, but this is one of those moments where I think you can say something about how this video made you feel. So just any sort of initial kinds of things that this might make you feel to think about what it might be like or what that video evoked in you? Any initial feelings? Sadness. Sadness? Thank you. Embarrassment. Embarrassment? Yes. All right. Thank you. Okay. Keep, I'm sorry? Anger. Anger. Okay. Thank you. Uh, I don't have time to go into all of those, but those all seem very valid feelings. And the question for us is how do we turn feelings into creative solutions, right? How do we move from a place of guilt, perhaps, which many of my students will say they feel guilty. Um, and I remind them, psychology tells us guilt is a very good short-term motivator. It's not a very good long-term motivator. So we need to find creative ways to deal with our long-term behavior. And hopefully our faith is one of those things that would help us move uh, more creatively in a long-term direction. So one of the goals of our two days together is to consider how our Christian witness should or does intersect um, with this particular great problem of the world. Uh, climate change, I would argue, and I do in the book, if you'd like to buy after uh, the class, is the greatest problem facing human civilization today. This is one effect of that. Uh, put another way, how will future generations judge us for our action in either mitigating this problem or exacerbating it? 
I think that's a very interesting question to start thinking about um, is how will future generations of Christians or others say what we were doing was right, wrong, or indifferent? And at some level, um, we, we like to think indifference is a sort of valid option, but indifference means just a, a, a continuation of the status quo, uh, which is putting people underwater and expanding deserts and sending people around the world to flee. So before getting uh, to that bigger question, there are five things that I'm just going to take as sort of given items due to our time constraint uh, today. Each of these five things could be a lecture on their own, and I have lectured on them on our own, but let me just say five things quickly and then turn to some biblical characters that I think might help us to frame this question a little bit more carefully. So number one, uh, climate change is happening and is primarily caused by humans burning fossil fuels for electricity, cutting the rainforests and other forests of the world, eating a meat and dairy-rich diet, to name just a few things. Uh, thus, it is most accurately called anthropogenic climate change, meaning that it is caused by humans. As a former scientist and, and now as a, as a thinker who follows this carefully, this could not be more... I mean, this is the, the climate change is happening and caused by humans is just as clear as gravity exists. Earthquakes are caused by plate tectonics, and quantum mechanics is the underlying theory under physics. Anthropogenic climate change is not a hoax or perpetuated by the Chinese. It is not a global conspiracy of liberal scientists to eliminate our civil liberties by instituting government, governmental mandates to reduce fossil fuel emissions. And it is certainly not going to be solved by humans having more babies who will eventually figure out this problem because our kids are always smarter and wealthier. This statement was given on the floor of the Senate by Utah Senator Mike Lee just a couple of weeks ago. He seemed to neglect the fact that kids today are more obese and unhealthy than their parents for the first time in American history. They will live less long than their uh, parents, but that's a story for another day. Number two, um, there are either climate migrants or refugees, depending on what you want to call them, moving around the world as we sit in air-conditioned comfort. The conservative estimate for that movement is about 200 million um, by the end of the century, and that's by the CIA, some military groups, and other non-governmental organizations. That's the conservative estimate. The upper end estimate is actually 10 times that, is closer to 2 billion people. Because of what you just heard in the video, if you think about where we live, most humans live near the coastline, and if you think about that 60 uh, uh, miles or so from the coastline, there's about 2 billion people around the world that are in the coastlines of the region. And then you add that to the, or not 2 billion, we have a billion or so people living near the coastlines of the world's great uh, continents, and then you have the, the folks from the desert that will be fleeing the deserts and moving to those cities that are on uh, the coast, where most of our great cities are, right? Think of San Francisco, think of New York, think of Seattle, think of London, et cetera, okay? To me, uh, I tend to think the upper end estimate may be closer to being accurate, considering that just about every one of our conservative estimates related to climate change and its effects have been blown out of the water just in the last 10 years alone. We have grossly underestimated this over and over and over again. Some of these migrants will come most immediately from low-lying island nations like Tuvalu or Kiribati or the Marshall Islands or the Maldives, while others will come from places like Central Africa Central America, where a profound lack of seasonal rainfall or prolonged drought is dramatically reshaping landscapes and expanding deserts. Eventually, these migrants will also come from places like London, or San Francisco, New York, Shanghai, Mumbai, Buenos Aires, Rio, or Dakar, which are just a few of the world's biggest cities on the planet right now and only getting bigger. 
Let me be absolutely clear, whether the low end or the high end estimate ends up being the most accurate, human civilization, at least for the last 15,000 years or so that we've known it, has never seen a voluntary or involuntary migration like this ever. There has never been a migration event of this size as long as Homo sapiens have been around, and at least in the last 15,000 years. Number three, some scholars, especially some legal uh, scholars and some economic scholars, do not believe there's such a thing or will ever be such a category as climate refugees because people, they say, will migrate for other reasons than climate change or will migrate before their land ever becomes patently uninhabitable. For example, some of these scholars argue that people will leave to pursue greater economic opportunities before their place of origin's lack of fresh water or arable land ever drives them to find new homes. I would submit the video right behind you. If you're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and your GDP is less than $3,000 a year, how are you getting to a new piece of land? Okay. There's much more that could be said about this, uh, but for now I argue that these folks are naysayers at best and callous to human misery at worst. Whatever we call people moving forward, um, but they're moving due to anthropogenic climate change to make their situation un unimaginable, which is making their situation unimaginably worse or completely uninhabitable, they are on the move today. As we sit here, people are moving. Number four, there is much discussion about the use of the term climate refugees to describe those who will have to abandon their land, often their ancestral land of thousands of years, in order to escape the ravages of the effects of anthropogenic climate change. Some Pacific Islanders in particular, for example in Tuvalu, reject the use of this language as they believe it indicates a loss of agency and perhaps even a loss of dignity. I mean, who really likes to be called a refugee? Right? It has such negative connotation in most of the world, especially in the Western world. So while I recognize those uh, in particular, like those in Tuvalu who reject this language, I don't have a better term at this point and there's no other term in the literature to describe these folks. So that being said, I want to radically affirm the dignity of those whose lands and ways of life are being submerged, turned into sand, destroyed by the effects of climate change, but use this term until something comes up that is better um, to, to describe these people. But whatever language we end up using, I think it is important to note that the vast majority of these migratory and refugee events are taking place due to the anthropogenic climate change of which the global north, and especially the US and many Western Euro European nations are historically the primary responsible agents. As you saw in that quick graph that went across the screen, um, the US is the primary progenitor of most of the world's pollution. Number five, and I think perhaps most importantly for us, there has for far too long been an inadequate response to climate change from the vast majority of American Protestants especially from those who are in important seats of power, whether that be political or denominational or otherwise. While many American Protestants still outright deny that anthropogenic climate change is occurring, according to the research, others have said in some form or another, until climate change affects humans, I'm not really all that interested. Well, I don't have the time in this presentation to evaluate that sad assessment of the facts more seriously. I do that with my students. I do have time to say this, that time, which many thought was somewhere out in the distant future when their kids got really, really old, is here, now. People are dying, people are losing their ways of life, and they're trying to find new places just to find fresh water, okay? So, I get it. The topic of climate migration or climate refugees seems really vast. It seems really complicated. 
and it's easy for us to throw our hands into the air because we have little idea of where to start even. Undoubtedly, there is some small truth to this, right? Where do you start when the problem just seems so overwhelming? But I believe that Christians must strongly resist the urge to maintain the status quo because of the unprecedented nature of the problem, right? It's easy to stick our hand in the, head in the sand when we're in air-conditioned comfort, right? Maintaining the status quo, though, means at least an implicit commitment, I believe, to suffering, injustice, and the destruction of cultures that stretch, stretch back thousands of years. So as a starting point today, I want to ask the question, how might we be evaluated by future generations concerning our actions today and then tomorrow look at um, four Christian virtues that I think might help uh, Christian churches sort of think about this a little bit more carefully or at least start to get into the topic without just completely freaking out, okay? So I'm going to give you a list of biblical figures and then you tell me who you think is your favorite figure. We have Samson we're going to talk about, Thomas from the New Testament, Noah, Esther, Ruth, and the unnamed widow of Zarephath. So go in reverse order. The unnamed widow of Zarephath, Ruth, Esther, Noah, Thomas, or Samson. Any favorite characters amongst those? Noah. You like Esther. Noah? Thank you. Ruth. You like Ruth? Noah seems to apply to the topic. <laughs> all right. He, he, they will all apply in a moment in different sorts of ways, but yes, that does seem... Jonah is in another book, yes. Um, Esther. Esther. Okay. So think about that for a second, and then think about how we perceive them and how other Christians maybe in your own communities perceive those folks. Because I want to ask the question and go through each of these characters individually and ask us, are these characters, um, are they figures who are valuable in helping us to understand how future God followers might view us today. Okay, so think about how you view them or how your church community views these characters and ask, are we inside of one of those characters more than not or could we be identified with one of those characters more than not, okay? So we'll start with Samson and you'll see how this works and maybe we'll make some sense in a few minutes, okay? Seems to me that Christians in the future could look back at us and say that we are easily identified as Samson. While Samson's genocidal tendencies and misogyny alone should cause American Protestants to evaluate their own histories, I get that, he is probably most famous for committing the vices of pride, wrath, lust, and envy. However, for our purposes today, I think it's important to think about the beginning of Samson's story. He is the Bible's version of Superman, right? He is perhaps the biblical figure, other than Jesus, who has been given the most gifts of anyone in Scripture. He's super strong, he's super smart. He's supposed to be able to lead people. He maybe even jumps over buildings. Like he's got a lot going for him just at the beginning of the story. So while his story is certainly one of genocide, which we often don't talk about in our churches, we talk about the redemption part, and then we don't talk about the second act of violence, right? We have this kind of interesting arc in that story of genocide, redemption, and then more violence. I think it is also a cautionary tale of someone who significantly squandered all of the power and wisdom with which God considerably blessed him. He is given everything and doesn't do hardly anything with it. And what he does with it is for his own selfish gain. And what he does with it is also genocidal and violent. And yet we don't seem to, to dwell on that, right? I wonder if this is how late 20th and now 21st century American Protestants will be judged 
by generations at the end of the century. Those who are being born now who will get older and look at us and say, what kind of ridiculous things were you doing or not doing? We are presently the most forewarned and simultaneously the most forearmed generation of human beings to ever exist to mitigate climate change. But to this point, we have willfully put our heads in the sand about this definitive issue of human civilization. I was at an event in September with some of the world leaders uh, on technology and world governments. We have more technology to solve climate change than we've ever had in human history, but most of the world's governments would just prefer that, to pretend like the problem's not happening. The nations of Kiribati and others cannot wait for us to do these things. And as um, the woman in the back mentioned in the uh, Caribbean sort of situation there, you have lots of very interesting energy development projects going on in places that have very little money, and yet we in America sit back and say, no, we're not going to do this. I just want us to think about that for a second. Will we be the Samsons of the future when we say we have been more <coughs> forewarned and we have more power than anyone else, and yet we have done nothing? And it is causing, even in that nothingness, it is causing violence and destruction and perhaps even cultural genocide. Okay? So that's option number one. Option number two, Christians could easily be known as the Apostle Thomas, usually known by his unfair, I think, moniker, the Doubting Thomas. As a former scientist, um, Thomas is our patron saint in many ways. Like Thomas, far too many American Protestants have been resistant to accept the evidence of climate change that has been publicly available and in many cases visible over at least the last 50 years, even though the theory of climate change goes back to the 1700s. It is so often that I hear Christians bash Thomas because of Jesus' subsequent response, which many Christians have taken to believe that they are somehow more pious than Thomas because they believe in the resurrected Jesus without seeing him. However, in our prideful retort, we neglect one significant fact. Thomas actually came to believe that Jesus indeed had risen. Unfortunately, unlike Thomas, far too few American Protestants, according to the research, so any evidence at all that they believe what's going on right in front of their faces as the sea levels rise, the deserts expand, and, th and insects go to extinction, and birds go to extinction, and the rest of the creation seems to be crowning. Unlike Thomas, we have plenty of evidence, but little movement towards belief. Perhaps this is how we're going to be viewed by our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids, the generation that doubted even though the evidence was right in front of them. <coughs> Third option, could Christians eventually come to be known as Noah. A few of us uh, actually probably are known as Noahs in our communities. Uh, we have been crying from the mountaintops that there's something wrong and perhaps we should listen. But I'm skeptical about whether more will end up joining before it's too late. Noah and the story of the ark could have tremendous impact on our situation if only we were to listen closely to the story. I think there are at least four significant lessons that we could be uh, teaching and learning today. Number one, Noah should be commended as virtuous because he listened to God before it was too late to act. We often like to highlight the part that he built an ark, but the story is about changing your behavior. It is not about building a piece of technology. Scientists have known uh, about climate change for more than 100 years. The fossil fuel industry has been lying about the impact of, of the effect of climate change for more than 50. We have um, really good evidence of that in uh, CEO documents and stockholder meetings 50 years ago. Developed world nations, including the US, have known uh, about and done nothing for at least 40 years. And the vast majority of American Protestants have been ignoring the visible signs of a changing planet for at least the last 30. 
Number two, we should not believe that Noah was deemed righteous because he built the ark. Remember, he's that herald of righteousness that is talked about in the letter to the Hebrew church. But perhaps he, because he was willing to change his behavior radically in, in order to avoid impending disaster, perhaps that's why he's a herald of righteousness. At this point, it seems unclear if we were willing to follow his example. Are we willing to drop all we're doing and listen to God? That's the challenge of all humanity, but it, particularly now as we think about impending disaster and how do we continue to do the same thing as we've done, or do we think there's something different to pursue? Number three, Noah is deemed righteous because he sacrificed much. Think about what he does in the story, right? He drops everything he's doing to build an ark. He sacrifices comfort to live in that ark. He sacrifices not only for humans, but just as importantly, he sacrifices for non-human creatures. We often look at Noah and his family and forget that, that that is a very small part of that story. There are lots of animals that are far more, uh, uh, the, the biodiversity is far more rich in that story than we like to admit. And number four, I think the final critical lesson of this story for us, at least today, is that it is clear that God permits humans to, be, to pay for the consequences of their sin, which in that story was wickedness and violence. It is unclear to me why so many American Protestant churches say if climate change really does exist, then God will swoop in and save the day because God would just not let the, the planet suffer such destruction that our best scientific modeling shows. This happens all the time. I hear it from churches all the time. I hear it from my students all the time. But this sort of mindset, folks, is just not biblical. We have it in this story alone. You're violent. You're wicked. God hits the reset button. That's how bad human sin is. So, could we be known as Esther? To me, the book of Esther is fraught with many challenges for modern readers, right? How many of the events of the story are actually based in history? That's a real challenge for modern historians. Why is a book with no mention of Yahweh or God in the biblical canon anyway? It's the only uh, Bible book of that sort. Why do we rush over the misogyny and sexual violence towards women in our attempt to valorize Esther? Uh, why, uh, while those are all important questions, they are not the ones that we'll look at for a moment today. Instead, there are at least two lessons that I believe are worth considering from this story for our problem. And first is this. Esther is obviously not happy with her present situation, as she likely had little, if any, agency as a woman during that time period to be where she was at. It's not like she just signed up one day and said, I'd like to be objectified and then sexually assaulted by the king. Sign me up. Okay. However, she accepts reality for what it is during that time period and fights it and faces it bravely and creatively with the very limited options of a woman during that time period. Similarly, many of us, I think, in this room probably have had very little to do with the historical, economic, and political decisions that have caused so much pollution and gotten us to this place that we are at today. But we are here regardless of whether we are the cause primarily of it or not. And unfortunately, I think far too few American Protestants accept reality for what it really is. We are responsible for dealing with climate change and the resulting refugees that come from it, regardless of whether we created the problem or not. Second, perhaps the oft-quoted reply from Mordecai um, that he sends to Esther should be more evocative during our time period than we care to admit. Remember in Esther 4, he says, For if you kept silent, or you keep silent at such a time as this, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter. But you and your families 
our father's family will perish. And who knows, perhaps you have come to royal dignity for such a time as this. And I think the same challenge is for us today. Perhaps you and I are living now so that we might be God's light to those who live in darkness, where it be in Kiribati or somewhere else, and have no hope from anyone or anything else. Climate refugees around the world need the active witness of hope that shows the light of God still has power to manifest goodness, mercy, and justice at least. It's hard to imagine what that might look like in a place like Kiribati, which we just saw, but we know God's work needs to be seen there. And that is at least an effective starting place rather than heads in the sand. What about Ruth? I know that was one of your favorite uh, characters. Could Christians eventually come to be known as the biblical figure Ruth? Well, this story is important for many reasons, especially for those migrants and refugees around the planet who identify their story and that of Ruth's already today. I want us to focus on just one aspect of Ruth's account. After Naomi's husband and sons die, she encourages her two daughters-in-law to go back to their homeland so they might be able to have a chance at a secure life again. Remember, being a widowed woman in that time period is not a really secure existence. While Orpah takes Naomi up on her offer, Ruth famously does not. Instead, Ruth binds herself to Naomi, saying this famous line, don't urge me to leave you or to turn uh, back from you. Where you will go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. In the context of our discussion today, we have a, a woman who willingly puts her entire life on hold to minister to someone in need. While it would have been wise to have returned to her homeland, that would have been the wise thing to do, and she would have been, I mean, we give Orpah too much grief for the fact that she actually made a good decision. Okay? Ruth instead chooses the path of extremely inconvenient sacrifice, if you want to call it but nothing else, in order to model God's love to her mother-in-law. I believe Ruth's actions should cause us to struggle with this important question today. What are Christians really willing to endure, Christians here in the States in particular, really willing to endure sacrificially in order to demonstrate God's love? Are we really willing to put our personal wishes, dreams, careers on hold in order to love family members in crisis or maybe even strangers? For example, I ask my students this all the time, particularly my first year students in the fall, are you really willing to sacrifice what our culture calls financial success at a corporate job if it meant you could spend the rest of your life applying creatively your gifts to the world's great problems? Right? That's something worth thinking about. And then finally, as we close today, are Christians around the world known as the unnamed widow of Zarephath? Maybe I should ask, do any of you know who the unnamed widow of Zarephath is, right? Uh, the quick version of the story is this. This is in first, the uh, book of First Kings. During a time of intense drought, which led to a profound famine, a widow and her son, the story goes, had enough resources to make one last meal and then await their certain death. The prophet Elijah arrives at their doorstep and asks to be taken in and fed. For some strange reason, the woman decides to neglect the needs of her son and her own needs and feeds this man whom she does not know. We don't seem to dwell on that part enough. We find out at the end of the story that her trust in Elijah is not misplaced as her basic food needs are reportedly met until the drought breaks or is subsided. There is much here in this short story that should at least give us pause, if not provide us 
a significant opportunity to learn some terribly troubling, if not important, lessons. lessons. For our purposes today, uh, we'll set aside the troubling gendered issues that would make it okay for an unknown male to barge in on a woman and demand food from her, which seemed to be all too commonplace uh, in the Old Testament text, but still happens in the States today. Moreover, I think the fact that she is unnamed, but the hero of the story is also equally troubling, but we'll have to set that aside for a moment. To be perfectly blunt, many of my students, when they read this for the first time, because they don't actually know what First Kings is, um, they don't just know it's sort of like part of the Bible, um, they say, why is this mother giving the last of her resources to an unknown stranger, and a male one at that? And I ask them, why is that a problem? And they say, well, it often strikes them that no matter how dire the circumstances, mothers are morally obligated to care for the needs of their children before those of strangers. That would seem to be the right thing to do. And while I think we should struggle with that, the story seems to be asking us to struggle with something even more problematic. That's not the issue of the story. The issue of the story seems to me to be this, which is, are we too required to demonstrate the radical, uncompromising, sacrificial hospitality that this woman does. It is hard to imagine a more dire circumstance than eating your last meal, but even amidst that scene, she exhibits the sort of hospitality the Israelites were commanded by Yahweh to show strangers regardless of their situation in life. This unnamed widow models uh, is an unnamed model of virtue because she shows us that hospitality truly demands of us something that will likely not only make us uncomfortable, but maybe make us feel insecure physically and that we're doing something that it feels unnatural. And yet, is this our obligation to a stranger as well? Whether that stranger be in Kiribati, whether that stranger be in Miami, whether that stranger be in off the coast of New Orleans where we have some of the first climate refugees in the US or other places around the world, okay? So I want to stop here just for, and say tomorrow uh, we'll talk about what it means to be a stranger and then look at four uh, virtues, solidarity, courage, justice, and hospitality and ask, are those things that our churches practice now and could those be things that we employ to try to solve a great world problem today rather than to continue to stick our heads in the sand? So I'll stop now and just say if, if there's any questions or comments, we have a couple minutes to do that. And if you need to leave, feel free to, to take off at any moment. Maybe not any moment, Morgan, but now. <laughs> yes, please. So um, what do you think about the projected grand minimum event? I haven't heard that term. What does that term imply? So recently it talks about solar activity. Um, and recently climatologists, specifically um, you know, um, global warming climatologists, those that are involved in that um, have published data that suggest uh, solar activity is decreasing, and they suspect by uh, mid-2020s uh, that we actually could see a mini ice age just because of decreased solar activity. And although optimistic about potentially the, the, not the CO2 generation effect and certainly the impact that that can have long-term, not only on climate or warming, but also uh, on other aspects of our environment, but nonetheless, potentially decrease the forecasted uh, ice age, uh, I'm sorry, the ice cap melting, and therefore sea level rises, which, you know, in my mind, I'm like, well, maybe God is going to help some of those people. But 
Certainly not that we don't have a responsibility to step in as well, but nonetheless, recent uh, scientific data actually just yeah. To the I'd have to see what that data is because we had one of the world's leading climate scientists here a couple day, a couple weeks ago, yeah. uh, Catherine Hayhoe, who actually happens to be a very devout Christian as well, and um, her point during that talk was that um, even if solar activity were to decrease, which is not clear that it is, yes. um, there is enough pollution in the atmosphere to continue to warm. Uh, the planet and is and in fact doing that and it has been doing that for at least the last 300 years and so I, I just have to see that and, and run that by her who's a pal of mine and some other uh, yeah, science I, science folks for that because what we, we do know is Antarctica for example we've had a big chunk come off that and there's a chunk about the size of the city of New York that we're waiting to just come off and that event alone uh, would cause a massive amount of sea level rise over the next couple of decades and Greenland is now melting faster, and Greenland alone melting uh, would cause New York to be underwater. You know, so we have some massive melting events, regardless of whether solar activity would happen. So some Stuff. climatologists are saying if you do have that grand minimum event, that potentially could slow it to a point that maybe our actions, although we need them right away, maybe we could implement them in such a manner that because some people are forecasting, even if we make massive changes we're already out of control to a point that yeah. we may not be able to. Well, I mean, I, it seems like the conservative, this is I know, a little bit past uh, the, the topic here, but the conservative, the most conservative scientists are saying we're committed to at least a three-foot sea level rise by the end of the century. Right. Like, regardless, of, if we stopped all carbon activity today, right. there's going to be th at least three feet uh, of sea level rise. Well, that puts London, parts of London underwater, that puts part, I mean, basically most of the coast of Florida goes underwater, that puts parts of San Francisco underwater, that puts parts of LA underwater. I mean, we're just talking about massive amounts of the world's great cities being underwater just at three feet, and that's the most conservative estimate. So it'd be interesting to see that data uh, against what, what uh, city planners and other civil engineers are already looking at as we're trying to, which cities do we protect and which places do we not? I just look at it as a spark of hope that maybe it would slow to a point that we could actually make a difference and change. Well, regardless of whether we can make a difference or not, I think the question is, are we called to make a difference? Right. And I think the calling is something that most American Protestants are just not even willing to accept. And so technological fixes are one side of this, and they're an important, hugely important part of this. But most American Christians are still not accepting the call. I mean, just looking at the data, most non-Christians think that climate change is happening. Most Christians do not. So we still have just a, a, just a problem accepting the basic, I mean, going back to Esther, ex expect, or accepting the basic reality for what it is is still a Christian problem when the non-Christian world seems to accept it. And I think that's a real problem if we think about how are you going to be involved in, in hopeful activity, which is actually what my book's all about, ho uh, to be hopeful in a time of crisis, when you don't accept the reality for what it is. Like, if the, the disciples come to the tomb and don't accept that Jesus is really dead, how do you accept the resurrection? You have to have Good Friday before you can have Easter Sunday, it seems like, and how we understand that, and that's an important piece of this. Well, yes, please. A solution that would affect most of these islands and most of the world within our lifespan? Uh, that's a good question, and there's not a one-size-fits-all solution because the way the physics of the planet works, some places are going to go underwater quicker than others. So, for example, just the way that the hot water expands versus cold water, New York is far more impacted by this than, say, San Francisco, even though the globe is so big and, and the way that uh, the water uh, sort of expands around the planet. So places like India, for example, which are much bigger, there's over a billion people in India, 
there have been military exercises done uh, with the U.S. to say what would happen if we're thinking that um, 100 or more million people just living on the coast of India couldn't find fresh water, would we put aircraft carriers there and to try to give fresh water to people who are going to be fighting over that? That's one sort of wishful kind of thinking example. Yeah, but what do you do? Do you do nothing or do you, yeah, and I don't have a, a good, I mean, I'm not a policy thinker to give you a policy solution to everything, but I, what I tell my students, for example, here in California, we're likely not to get these folks coming to us. They're just too far away. But in California, who's coming already? Central Americans. Drought and famine are causing Central Americans to migrate more north. So if we sort of put aside all the political rhetoric um, that calls brown people bad, uh, they are moving because they can't grow food. And that is happening, and it has happened all over the world for thousands of years, and now it's happening on a span and a scale that we've never seen before. And so I think the question for us as Christians is, what do you do in the context that is yours? So, in, for example, in some of those low-lying island nations, Catholic communities have been involved in that for 100 years or more, and so there's Catholic relief groups that are trying to work in between governments of like New Zealand and Australia and other places um, to help there be transport of people civilly and compassionately rather than to wait for people to be underwater. So there's uh, lots of different ways, and it's just depending on which type, which part of the world that you look at. Yeah, and so. Well, it's going to be culture change for us too, right? I mean, and that the question is, do we do we care or not? And I think that's really the biggest question that Christians have to ask first, which is, do you really care? And our actions seem to belie the fact that we say we care when we're still continuing to consume and still eating and doing all these things at a gross amount of level that is allowing this to continue to happen. And so that's why I think something like the, the character of Ruth is very interesting. Are you willing to drop everything and deal with the problem that is in front of you? And that's for each of us, myself included, to decide what is the great problem that's in front of you that God's calling you to do, rather than the little tiny problems that we would prefer to deal with. And I think that's something that Christians will be judged by future groups. Yes, please. Do you think that uh, the United States population will change their thinking if we have more of the extreme weather that we've had for the past couple of years? Uh, well, uh, I wouldn't call it extreme weather. I'd call it weather that is out of bounds for the last recorded history, for example. <laughs> um, it fits exactly with the modeling of climate change that we would have these, these events that you might call extreme. Um, that is showing this. There's two things that the data is starting to show is changing American mindsets. One is snow in times of the year when there's not supposed to be hail in times of the year where there's not supposed to be, et cetera, flooding now, for example, in Miami where it's almost year-round. The other thing is interesting, and the data is starting to show, the more that President Trump talks about climate change being a hoax, the more people tend to go look for reasons, see if he's correct or not, and that is actually driving more people to think that climate change is true. It's a very interesting backwards sort of thing going on. And sociologists are not really sure uh, what the cause is, but it seems to be the correlation right now. So the more he tweets that this is a hoax, and the more that he tweets that this is a problem, and that American jobs are being taken, the more Americans seem to be looking it up and finding that it is not actually the case. For example, the wind energy market, the wind energy industry, is the largest growing industry in, in the U.S. right now. 
and solar is like number three or number four in that. So you, you have this kind of interesting paradox that he did not expect just on, on that alone. Yes, please. Um, speaking as a millennial where climate change has been a constant form of education, especially growing up in places like Seattle, Washington, and uh, uh, yeah, more green areas, um, is the individual's carbon footprint decline helping in any sense? Like for instance, I, I, like, I feel really embarrassed to have this cup. Right. <laughs> I typically have my to-go mug. And, yeah. you know, I have a water bottle. I refuse to buy plastic. Um, and so I care a lot about my carbon footprint. Like is that, even if I were to encourage one other person, is that going to help in any way? Yeah, it's going to make a difference. Yes, it does, um, but not in the way that's going to solve the problem overnight, right? Like, so I have a, re those of you on tape, I have a reusable water bottle, right? right. And so have most human beings until 1950s, yeah. right? I mean, human civilization was built on reusable water bottles, whether they were made out of leather or animal skin or something else or glass. It's only been in the last few decades, particularly since the 1950s and the invention of plastic, that we decided, no, we are just far too sophisticated and we'd rather leave behind plastic that will last for at least 500 to 1,000 years and is the longest um, physical legacy that any of us in this room will leave behind to our kids, okay? So is the individual, yes, of course it's important. Is it gonna solve the problem? No. And I think that's an important thing because millennials and post-millennials or centennials or iGens, whatever the next generation is to be called, think that if it doesn't solve the problem, then why engage at all? Okay, and so here's uh, the quick example I'll give you, and I know some of you need to leave, so don't feel uh, obliged to say. What I talk about in the book is what I call the Amish dilemma. The Amish are very interesting folks, and for those of you who don't remember, in Pennsylvania, um, about, I'm gonna get the date wrong, like five to 10 years ago, there was a massive school shooting, and, uh, and then the uh, killer uh, killed himself. And the, uh, the Amish were sort of made a very interesting response that made, made headline national news for a while. They showed up at his funeral. They brought food to the mother and the surviving children. They diverted all of the medical money that was sent to them to the family of the, of the, uh, the, vic or the, the shooter's wife. And you know, they didn't grant a lot of interviews, as you might imagine. Um, but so some people that were close to the Amish said, you know, why are you doing this? And they said, you know, we get a lot of grief for not using electricity and wearing these funny clothes and doing all these other things. But we don't do them because they're funny. We do them in order to discipline ourselves. Because if we discipline ourselves in the small things, then we'll be able to discipline ourselves and act like God's servants in big moments. And so if we can't discipline ourselves to, in their case, not use electricity or wear certain clothes, then how are we to show Christ's love in a moment of crisis? like a school shooting. And that, of course, didn't make a lot of sense to anyone that's not Christian. And it terrified some of us, I think, who are Christian that said, oh my God, do I have to start actually acting this way? <laughs> because what we found is that we like to believe, and I sort of tell students all the time, I talk about it in the book, we like to believe that in the big moments of our life, we'll really come yeah. and be the people that we're supposed to be, as if we don't need any training on that, on the small stuff. And the Amish have it exactly, I think, correct, and it's exactly opposite, which is if you don't train yourself in the small things, I mean, those who played sports would know this, you don't actually act well in the big moments of life. So in a time of tragedy, your real character will be revealed, and if you haven't been practicing to be decent or to be brave or to be kind, then you're not going to be. So my challenge to students is, you know, 
not using plastic or not eating meat or not doing these things is actually those small bits of discipline and they show hopeful activity because they are real acts of hope. They might be small ones, but they are preparing you for perhaps greater sacrifices that have to be made, whether they be climate related or your own personal life related. And if we're not willing to give up meat once a week or twice a week or most of the time, then what are we really saying? You know, or if we're not willing to use reusable water bottles that most of the rest of the planet has used for 15,000 years, are we really saying that we're so special that our legacy of plastic water bottles that will be behind in 1,000 years is the greatest legacy that we're going to leave? I mean, I think that Amish dilemma is really the thing that we should be considering, and I, that's why I hold out to millennials and post-millennials all the time, to say these small things really matter because if we just maintain the status quo, we'd still have slavery. It seemed like a massive problem that would never be fixed. But individual Christians said, no, this is not God's way. I don't care if the problem is solved at a social level or not. It is our job not to own slaves. You could say the same thing about civil rights movement, about the women's rights movement, about the LGBTQ movement. I mean, there's lots of things that if individuals didn't, Christians did not say enough, we don't have anything that transforms society because God's presence is not felt. And I think it's something as simple as that, not to shame you for having that, um, because that's the opposite of this, right? You have a reusable bottle. It's really trendy in L.A. right now, you know, to have these sorts of things, and you can become self-righteous. Yeah. So that's, that's sort of the, the balancing act, right, is not to become self-righteous, but uh, to be hopeful. And, and that's something we all have to work on. We all become self-righteous very easily when we're sitting in air-conditioned comfort, and we're not thinking about folks halfway around the world that are trying to grow food because... Their land no longer gives food because of our emissions. So I think that's the little bit of that that might be helpful. Okay. I know some of you have to be places. Thank you. I'll stay around for a few minutes, but thank you very much for being here. I'd love to see you tomorrow, same time.